The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, May 23rd, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The ex-head of the CIA was on Capitol Hill today testifying before the House Intelligence Committee where he said flat out Russia, quote, brazenly interfered with the 2016 election process. He told the House Republicans about it at the time, he told the House Democrats about it at the time, and he even told the Russians about it. Now, two of those three groups wanted him to shut up about it before the election, and the one that thought he maybe should tell the Americans about it didn't control Congress. Oh, I should also be clear, they also weren't the Russians. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. In the spiel, I will break down Brennan's interesting exchange with Congressman Trey Gowdy. Here's a preview. Did you see evidence of collusion, coordination, conspiracy between Donald Trump and Russian state actors? I saw information intelligence that was worthy of investigation by the Bureau to determine whether or not such cooperation or conclusion uh, was taking place. Got it. Gowdy wants the C words, collusion, cooperation, coordination. Brennan hits him with the eyes, intelligence, information, investigation. Will the eyes have it or will the C word in the form of Trey Gowdy prevail? I'll break it all down and I hope this part helps. That doesn't help us a lot. But first, speaking of words and politicians and obliquely speaking of roiling investigations into what Trump said to the Russians and what officials in national security thought about that, I will today... Get to all that through the persons of Winston Churchill and George Orwell, the British Prime Minister, the author of Animal Farm in 1984, and our guide is Tom Ricks, war correspondent, Pulitzer Prize winner, first-hand observer of the big crises of the 21st century, on the Englishman who best observed and presided over the greatest crises of the 20th. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, 
B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If we are talking about war, and we are talking about words, and we are talking about the 20th century in England, we're talking about two towering figures, Winston Churchill and George Orwell. And there is a new book about these two men, how they intermingled, I think uh, Orwell, more affected by Churchill in his lifetime. Churchill probably didn't even read Animal Farmer. There's no record if he did. The subtitle of the book is The Fight for Freedom, and there's no better person to emphasize that aspect of Churchill and Orwell than Thomas Ricks, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, longtime contributor to the Washington Post. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Did you come into it more of a Churchill guy or an Orwell guy? I came into it a Churchill and Orwell guy. They're both heroes of mine. Like myself, they were both war correspondents, and that intrigued me. These two guys I consider the greatest men of the 20th century had both been war correspondents, and I kind of was pondering that. And then separately, I was also going back and reading a lot of 20th century journalism. And I was trying to figure out who has really lasted and who hasn't. And I was surprised. I read H.L. Mencken, totally anachronistic. I went and read S.J. Perlman, not funny. Uh, I read some of Hemingway's uh, articles, not very good, frankly, no better than his novels, which I think stink. Then I picked up Orwell, and it was stunning what a fresh contemporary voice he seemed, both in his style and in his observations. The funny thing is, you referred to him correctly in your introduction as a kind of towering titan. In his own time, he wasn't. Uh, he, he was seen, if at all, as a minor figure, hardly showed up in Bartlett's quotations or in the British who's who at the time of his death. Yeah, I think that if you're not a politician, just the very fact of popularity for an artist, especially an artist trying to tell truths to a society, I would say it's almost a negative correlation between the popular truth tellers and the lasting truth tellers, especially when societies are teetering. I'm glad you said that because I've long had a skepticism about popularity of the moment. I I tend to think the more popular something is at a given time, probably in the long term, the wronger it is. Yeah, I think so. But I think that for Churchill, without popularity, literally without winning elections, he wouldn't have had power. So as, as I was considering both these figures in your book, Orwell, I think in retrospect, grows the most. Churchill, in a way, was hemmed in by a lot of the realistic choices he had to make just to run a government. Yes, but his kind of transformative experience is before he runs the government. In the 1930s, he is on the outs with his own party. The conservatives really came to hate him and dislike him. Even after he became prime minister, as a member of the conservative party, he was widely distrusted by the conservatives. And that's another interesting parallel between Churchill and Orwell, is that if you're going to be a truth teller, You're going to have to step on your own side's toes sometimes. You're going to have to blow the whistle, police your own side. So just as Orwell could be very critical of the left, Churchill in the 1930s was very critical of his own party's foreign policy, appeasement. And he said, this is really stupid. The fact of the matter, he says repeatedly in the House of Commons, the fact of the matter is that Germany is rearming. And the smart people running British foreign policy, the prime minister, said Churchill is just causing trouble for us here. And they really came to dislike him. As war correspondents, Orwell is, of course, great. 
Churchill was, by today's standards, I, I, I would hope he'd be fired from any non-Fox uh, employer. But what are your assessments of him? Well, the rules were different back then. Uh, That's right. M- military officers often had a sideline as journalists. Churchill kind of inverted that. He became a journalist who had a military sideline. But even Orwell, he goes to Spain ostensibly to cover the Spanish Civil War in late 1936 and almost immediately puts down his pen and picks up a rifle and joins the splinter anarchist Trotskyite group, the POUM, P-O-U-M, which is fighting the fascists on the front lines, but also it comes under attack from the Stalinist communists back in Barcelona. He steps into the middle of a huge mess and is transformed by the experience, comes back to England and says emphatically, hey, everybody, the left is lying as much about Spain as the right is. People are making things up. Today, we would call it fake news. But I think that I got the impression that you look at Orwell's war reporting as fundamental or just his reflections of it, even in essays after the fact, Farewell Catalonia and so forth, as essentially honest. And I don't know if you want to pronounce Churchill's self-hagiography as dishonest, but there was a lot of fluff to it. Churchill had an ulterior motive. Churchill wanted to gain glory and fame and to run for office. And he used his war correspondence to do that. In his adventures, he basically had a comic book adventure. He's captured by the Boers. He escapes from the POW camp. My guess is he bribed somebody, but he got out. Hops a train, has a big adventure, and becomes famous, writing the story of that. How motivated by money were each of them? Churchill was enormously motivated by money and he he basically made his living as a journalist. He didn't make money as a politician and he inherited very little money. And he made sure he was motivated because he always spent more money than he had. He was always in debt. Orwell was not real motivated um, by money. I think he really wanted to to be and to be seen as a teller of truth. Sometimes he seemed to go out of his way to antagonize his editors, to test them, to see if he could get away with telling a an uncomfortable truth about something. <laughs> who, who in their way was the better persuader? Churchill was a wonderful orator. His speeches, especially the speeches of 1940 that we even know the phrases from today, blood, sweat, and tears. We will fight them on the beaches, their finest hour. Uh, those are all quotes from the speeches of the spring, summer, and fall of 1940, which was Churchill's greatest year. Orwell was a lousy speaker, but I think in his observations and in his essays is magnificently persuasive. Uh, every couple of years, I reread his essay, Politics in the English Language, which is one of the two best things I've ever seen on writing. In fact, when I hire a research assistant, I ask them to read first strunk and white on the basic monograph on how to write and then read politics of the English language for how to think about writing. In the book, it seems that both Churchill and Orwell at different times talked about uh, since I've been in war, I question those who haven't actually seen war to make pronouncements. I see the logic of that, and yet I also see the trap of that. What do you, since you're a war correspondent who has lived through that, how do you weigh in? It's interesting because this actually comes a lot up a lot from me. I've seen combat in, in different countries, but I have never worn a uniform, and so frequently people will say to me, "How dare 
you write about this stuff when you've never served? My answer is you don't pick your, your doctor if you have cancer by whether he's had cancer. You, you try to find the best oncologist you can, somebody who is professional and studying their task and understanding it. So I don't think you have to have been in war to understand it, but it sure helps to have heard the, the bullets fly a little bit to understand it. At one point in the book, there there are quotes from Neville Chamberlain, the personal nature of him trying to work out his uh, deal with Hitler. You know, he's essentially saying, I'm the one who has the fate of millions of my countrymen and their wives and their families on me. And so this is why I'm trying to achieve peace. And I have to say, the echoes there were of, to me, Barack Obama and the Iran deal. Like anyone, it's easy to criticize essentially what they were saying. But since war is so horrible, we're doing whatever we can to achieve peace. Do you think we've almost overlearned the lesson of Chamberlain that anyone who offers a peace deal is always called an appeaser? Yeah, I think to compare Obama to Chamberlain here is incorrect for this reason. Appeasement in Chamberlain's hands was negotiating from a position of weakness. And the lesson of that is don't negotiate from a position of weakness because the other party will agree to deals and then come back and break them and push you again and again. Obama negotiated from a position of strength from a U.S. military behind him that the Iranians know could basically reduce Iran's military to a shambles in about three weeks. So I think he was in a very different position. He was saying to Iran, we can do this the easy way or the hard way, and I can do either way. Meanwhile, he had General James Mattis, then General Mattis, sitting behind him saying, let me at him, boss. Mm -hmm. It was a very good negotiating position. Did Mattis honestly want the get, I mean, he would execute his duty, but did Mattis honestly want the uh, say-so to start dropping bombs? When he was chief of Central Command, the U.S. military headquarters, for the Middle East and focused on Iran, Mattis wanted the Obama administration to take a more aggressive policy, to respond more vigorously to Iranian mischief across the Middle East in Syria, Yemen, other places. And in fact, the Obama administration fired him, retired him early out of his job uh, for that reason. So it's ironic that now he comes back as Secretary of Defense. Uh, yeah. I think Iran's got to think, well, that didn't work out real well for us. Well, what are the dynamics then of an administration where Mattis is the adult and the cautionary voice? My personal belief about the Trump administration is we're seeing what it's like not to have a White House. The Trump people, their, their great redeeming factor is they're the gang that can't shoot straight. They are incompetent. So Mattis and McMaster and Tillerson, these people in other positions, are basically running U.S. policy. It's almost as if there had been a nuclear strike that decapitated the U.S. government. We have no president. And you actually see how robust the U.S. government actually is. It can survive not having a real president. And that's where we are right now. Yeah, I've always said competent people doing their jobs will be our deliverance. I wanted to ask you about McMaster. You know him from his days in uniform. Is I've there known anything... him since he was a major, I think, about 20 years ago. 
I'm not going to say you made him, but I first became aware <laughs> of this guy's existence because of you. So, uh, you know, no, I, he, I just, he actually he, he wrote a terrific book, Dereliction of Duty, and that's really what made him. I think it yeah. came about around 1997. I remember when the chairman of the Joint Chiefs sort of made it mandatory reading inside the U.S. military. That really got a lot of people's attention. Is there anything that you know about him or any insight you could shed? Because his line in the last few days about that meeting with the Russians is, well, he's been the one who's put out there to perhaps draw down his or draw upon his credibility to say nothing untoward happened, to dismiss concerns that there was anything in that meeting with Kislyak and Larov that Americans should worry about. Is there anything going on there, do you think, beyond you know, the the interpretation that everything he's saying is what he believes and he really thinks it was no big deal. Yeah. I think McMaster is going out to defend the president because Sean Spicer no longer has any credibility. And so McMaster is deploying his own personal credibility, especially inside the national security community, to reassure people. But McMaster worries me here, and a lot of people in the sort of the world of defense who pay attention are, are worried. Uh, he's broken a lot of hearts in the last couple of weeks with his actions. His job is not to protect the president. His job is to help protect the nation. It's other people's job to go out and be political. He is expending his own credibility on behalf of this president. And he's been quibbling. First, he comes out and says, oh, the Washington Post story is false. Then the next day he says, well, I meant to say its premise was false. Whenever as a reporter I had somebody say the premise of your story is false, I'd say that's because the facts are right and you, and you can't argue the facts, so you're arguing the premise. And this is problematic for a couple of reasons. McMaster is a general on active duty. He did not retire when he took this position. He remains subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is a somewhat higher standard than – civilian officials must follow. For example, if Donald Trump were subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, he would almost certainly be facing a court-martial right now for sexual harassment. Yeah. So McMaster must live to a higher standard and knows it. The second thing is, this isn't just any general, nor is it any just any smart general. And he is one of the smarter generals. This is the general who, damn it, wrote the book called Dereliction of Duty, saying that the generals of the Vietnam era failed their country by not speaking truth to power, by not telling the president what their views were. They bit their tongues. And it's kind of Shakespearean to see H.R. McMaster come out and do the same. Why is he doing this? And I think he's doing it because he knows that if he stepped down, if he resigned in protest, that Trump would simply appoint some yahoo you know, one of Bannon's pals to be national security advisor. I mean, they tried it already. They had this Yahoo named Flint, uh, yeah. a naive general, not very bright, uh, not really knowledgeable about how Washington works, not a strategic thinker. He blew up on the launch pad. So McMaster's got to be thinking, I'm the only thing that stands between disaster here. And he's probably carrying a crushing burden. How do I maintain my access to the president so he will listen to me. And I think he's doing that by defending the president. Yeah. And uh, a couple more questions on Trump, because, of course, you can't read a book that without resonances of today. It does strike me that just in terms of rhetoric, Trump doesn't actually violate Orwell's rules of how not to convey oneself. 
Does he? He doesn't, but um, he, that's because he's below the bar. Uh, it's not because he's above it. Trump's vocabulary is so limited. This is actually one of the interesting points in 1984 that Orwell comes back to again and again. The government dumbs down language. And so he has in one passage, they do away with the words splendid and excellent and replace them with good, uh, plus good and double plus good. And that just sounds to me like Trump. It actually reminds me of one of my all-time favorite poems. Are you allowed to do poems on your pod? You are. You could curse and do poems, yeah. yeah. Um, W.H. Auden has a poem called August 1968, which is simultaneously about the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia and the Chicago police riot against uh, demonstrators during the Democratic Convention. It's very short. It goes like this. The ogre does what ogres can, things quite impossible for man. But one thing is beyond his reach. The ogre cannot master speech. Across the subjugated plain, among its desperate and slain, the ogre stalks with hands on hips and drivel gushes from his lips. Every time I see Trump's lips, I think, and drivel gushes Mm. from his lips. Thomas E. Ricks covered the military for the Wall Street Journal in the 90s, the Washington Post in the aughts. He blogs for foreign policy. He is the author of uh, Fiasco and now Churchill and Orwell, The Fight for Freedom. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was fun. And now the spiel. When told by the former head of the CIA, John Brennan, that Russia, quote, brazenly interfered with the U.S. election, different people had different reactions. And you would figure that that would be the case. Like, you'd figure the Russians would like it. And you'd figure that American elected officials would be concerned. There were quite a few who seemed genuinely concerned and troubled with the signs that a hostile power aided and abetted in a Trump victory. But other elected officials were more fascinated by issues concerning alphabetizing. Here is an exchange between ex-CIA chief John Brennan and South Carolina Congressman Trey Gowdy. I was aware of intelligence and information uh, about contacts uh, between Russian officials and U.S. persons that raised concerns in my mind about whether or not those individuals were cooperating with the Russians either in a witting or unwitting fashion, and that served as the basis for the FBI investigation to determine whether such collusion uh, cooperation uh, occurred. All right. Well, there, there are a bunch of words that start with C floating around. C is for concerns about collusion, and that's good enough for me. But not good enough for Rep. Gowdy. He put it to the ex-CIA chief. Was it contact that you saw? Was it something more than contact? What is the nature of what you saw? I saw interaction and aware of interaction that, again, raised questions in my mind about what was the true nature of it. But I don't know. I I don't have sufficient information to make a determination whether or not such cooperation or complicity or collusion was taking place. Elsewhere, Gowdy hit Brennan on the issue of evidence. When you learned of Russian efforts, did you have evidence of a connection between the Trump campaign and Russian state actors? As I said, Mr. Gowdy, I don't do evidence. 
I don't do evidence is an accurate description of what the CIA does do. It does not build a case. It is not there to satisfy rules of evidentiary procedure in a court of law, a court of law that has a standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. CIA's job is to give the right leaders the right intelligence on what is happening. That is accurate. And to Trey Gowdy, that is also an opening. I appreciate that you don't do evidence, Director Brennan. Um, Unfortunately... That's what I do. That's the word we use. You use the word assessment. You use the word tradecraft. I use the word evidence. Um, And the good news for me is lots of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle use the word evidence, too. Um, One of my colleagues said there is more than circumstantial evidence of collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign. Now, uh, there are only two types of evidence. There's circumstantial and direct. So if it's more than circumstantial, by necessity, it has to be direct. I'm going to stop here to note this. Trey Gowdy's good at this. You can tell he's an accomplished prosecutor. But also, please note that he has subtly shifted the terms of the debate from what really happened, which I think is important, to does this fit the legal definition of evidence? Let us rejoin. There are only two types of evidence. There's circumstantial and direct. So if it's more than circumstantial, by necessity, it has to be direct. Those aren't my words. Those are the words of one of my colleagues on the other side of this very committee. Another Democrat colleague on the other side of this committee also used the word evidence, that he has seen evidence of collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And yet a third California Democrat said she had seen no evidence of collusion. So that's three different members of Congress from the same state using the same word, which is evidence. Yeah, but it does seem important to note that one of those three, before the word evidence, did say not evidence. Anyway, technical point. Gowdy continued. Evidence. And that's the word that my fellow citizens understand. Evidence. Assessment is, is your vernacular. I'm just a simple country lawyer, but I know what I know. And I know citizens do not understand the word corroborated. They can't possibly. And Gowdy said he didn't want to get into anything about evidence except for the evidence. Not getting into whether or not you corroborated, contradicted, examined, tested and probed the reliability of that evidence. So I guess Gowdy thereby acknowledged that there was evidence. But anyway, he still needed to ask the one simple question. Did evidence exist of collusion, coordination, conspiracy between the Trump campaign and Russian state actors at the time you learned of 2016 efforts? Here was Brennan's answer. I encountered and I'm aware of information and intelligence that um, revealed contacts and interactions between Russian officials and U.S. persons involved in the uh, Trump campaign. Look, Gowdy is a better talker, a plainer talker, and Brennan uses jargon, U.S. persons. But, and I'll play you how he concluded with his answer, his message is overall more compelling than the narrow question Gowdy is asking. It's more compelling than, can we consider the stuff you found to be, quote, evidence? I know that there was a sufficient basis of information and intelligence that required further Uh, investigation by the Bureau to determine whether or not U.S. persons were actively conspiring, colluding with Russian officials. So let us now zoom out for a second from plain talking Trey and erstwhile spook Brennan. One, an American who presumably loves his country, 
was alarmed that the Russians were interfering with the U.S. election. The other, an American who presumably loves his country, was arguing, yeah, but shouldn't we spend some time debating what label we use on your observation? A lion has escaped from the zoo. Well, do we know for sure if it was technically an escape? Perhaps the lion was let out. Perhaps it was freed in transport as part of a local circus-related activity. Maybe Trey Gowdy was successful in convincing people who watched the hearing or people who wanted to believe him to begin with that the CIA chief didn't dot his eyes. But in doing so, Gowdy tried to cover his eyes. And what's really the point of what Trey Gowdy was doing? You can only come to the conclusion that he was running interference for the administration. This is why we need what the Senate Intel Committee is doing, but what the House Intel Committee, um, key member of which is Trey Gowdy, what you heard there, what they're dragging their feet on, we need an investigation. Because what's the point of an investigation? To gather evidence. The White House doesn't want an investigation because it says there is no evidence. Guess what? There will continue to be no evidence without an investigation. But now Mueller's in place. And now the Senate is conducting a real investigation, though they do only have seven investigators. I'm not saying that's meager, but the guys at the NCAA who are assigned to Calipari and the guys at the SEC who were assigned to Madoff are looking at those seven and going, yeah, pretty scant, kind of scant. Also on Capitol Hill testifying were top intelligence officials Mike Rogers and Dan Coats, who the Washington Post and others have reported were leaned on by the Trump administration to make the Russia investigation go away. Those two guys sidestepped those questions. But Adam Schiff, Democrat of California, asked Brennan if he knew of any member of the intel community who was approached by a Trump official to get the investigation to go away. And I will play you some of that exchange. Uh, Have any members of the IC shared with you uh, their concerns that the president was attempting to enlist the help of people within the intelligence community to drop the Flynn investigation? No, sir. You heard that. Okay, you heard that right. You have good listening comprehension. Brennan said he is not aware of Trump pushback. This is how the right played it. Townhall.com. Brennan. No, Trump hasn't pressured the intelligence community to drop the Flynn investigation. Gateway pundit. Boom. Trump never pressured intelligence community to drop Flynn investigation video. Is that what we heard? Is that what he said? If you're saying that's what he said, are you honest? Are you demonstrating in general that you think the facts are on your side? And let me offer a reason why Intel officials didn't tell the ex-director of the CIA that Trump was leaning on him. It's because he was the ex-director of the CIA. He left office the day Trump took office. I honestly, personally, do not know, have no real developed theory if there was, in fact, collusion, coordination, or cover-up. It could really be that a Fakakta loose cannon like Mike Flynn or a mercenary operator like Paul Manafort or a scheming wannabe like Carter Page were both simultaneously in the Trump orbit and in the Kremlin's pocket. Could be. You know what? I'd like to find out. And doesn't in curiosity or running interference make you, you know, a bad American, boom. And that's it for today's show. Dan Bloom engineered our Tom Ricks conversation. Thanks, Dan. Chris Brube, just producer, knows of no evidence that members of the intelligence community have massive cases of lactose intolerance. 
boom, Mary Wilson, just producer, can report that members of the Intel community routinely chug buttermilk like camels at an oasis. Steve Lichtai is executive producer at Slate Podcasts. Podcast producer presides over Pesca. A lot of peas in that answer. A lot of peas. If you want to give us a review, we are at Apple Podcasts. Do you know why we're at Apple Podcasts? Because that's what they call their podcast now. Forget the iTunes store and this and that. You go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to celebrate the podcastiness of Apple Podcasts. The gist, all countries trying to influence American elections are equal. Some are more equal than others. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.